feel good uh, to sing the praises of the one who's worthy of it with God's people, and uh, thanks for singing along this morning. Uh, one thing that we make a practice of in our church is that we, uh, on Sunday mornings as I preach, we're walking through typically a book of the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and what that uh, does is it opens us up to the whole counsel of God that you wouldn't just get to hear whatever your pastor thinks is most important, but that we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we go through all of scripture, even some tough spots. Uh, Romans has been such a good book to walk through. Many challenges as we go through it, uh, and many people would say that one of the most challenging spots all throughout the book of Romans is this section that we're in today, in Romans chapter 9. Uh, we started Romans chapter 9 last week, we're going to continue it today, and so if you weren't here last week, um, maybe try and catch you up a little bit, but I'm not going to be able to re-preach that whole sermon, uh, and so uh, try to get it in context for us a little bit. Here's the big thing I'm thinking of today. The idea for us is that we often like to try as much as possible to be fair, and we like it when things are fair. So when we're kids and we're playing a game and it's not fair, we might just take our ball and go home because that's just not fair. When you're a grandma and you're buying gifts for your grandkids, you want to make sure, maybe you don't, but the grandmas in our lives do this, make sure that every kid has the exact same number of gifts so that one of them can't cry out that this was just unfair and he got more than me. We like things to be fair, but today we're going to talk about something that is better than fair. Remember, if you were here last week, that we started going through this section of Romans. It, chapters 9 through 11 are three chapters that are really trying to answer the question, and that is, will God keep His promises made to Israel? The Christians in Rome that Paul is writing to, many of them have a Gentile or non-Jewish background, but some of them have a Jewish background. And, and they're going to hear as they come to faith in Christ and grow up as disciples so many things from the Old Testament. And they might come to wonder, well, if God has given me all these promises, like these great promises that we just heard in Romans chapter 8, if this is what God promises to His people, I'm very happy. But they might start to wonder as they see, but all of these promises that God made in the Old Testament to this people Israel, has He fulfilled all those promises? That's the question that Paul's trying to address here in Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 11. And so, the question that we looked at last week was mainly the question, is God faithful? Because so many of these people, these Jewish people, and Paul, remember at the beginning of chapter 9 last week, reminding us that he himself was once Jewish, before he came to faith in Christ, he still has a Jewish ethnicity, but now he trusts in Jesus. But he's looking around, and so many of the people that he loves and cares about, his fellow Jews, so many of them don't trust in Jesus. And his heart breaks for the lost people around him. His desire, he said, I would even be cut off from Christ if it meant that more of them could come to faith in Christ. He loves them deeply, and he says, he's trying to get his mind around the fact, he's like, they've had all these advantages. All of their scriptures point ahead to Jesus, yet so many of them reject him. So he says, so has God failed to keep his promise? And the answer was very clear last week, nope. 
God has not failed to keep His promise. God will keep His promises to His people. Now last week, if the question was mainly, is God faithful? And the answer is, yes, of course He is. And then we got to some spots last week that might raise some questions for you. And Paul recognizes that the things that he wrote in the passage we looked at last week might raise some questions for you. And I've heard that some of the life group discussions that you had in the last week were a bit lively uh, because you had some questions. That's great. Paul understands that people would have those kind of questions when he says those kinds of things. And so today, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the things that Paul had to say last week. And today, the question is going to be a little bit more, rather than is God faithful, is is God just? Is God just? If God willingly chooses to save some and not others, you might ask the question, well, is that fair? Is that that just? And we're going to say, yes, it's better than fair. God is just And God is merciful. I think we're going to see that pretty clearly this week as we read the second half of Romans chapter 9. And so, if you're able to, would you open up your Bible and then please stand as we read God's Word. We're going to read Romans chapter 9 starting in verse uh, 14 this week. Starting in verse 14, we're going through not quite to the end of the chapter, we're going through to verse 29. I'm going to pray first, and then let's read together. Father, uh, come, come now by your Holy Spirit and illuminate your word. Shine a light in our hearts. Help our minds that are easily distracted, our hearts that easily love other things. And help us to be focused for this period of time so that the result at the end is that we would walk away in awe of who you are, of your justice and of your mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read God's Word. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14, God's Word says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Uh, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You can be seated. In your bulletin, as usual, there is a sermon notes guide, maybe a spot for you to take notes there, and then also your life group guide. And if you're not in a life group, again, uh, go ahead and call the office and we'll get you in one. Or uh, you can use that life group guide just as an application guide on your own as well. All right, three points today. The first one is this, God's choice to have mercy on some and not others is not unjust. So we see in verses 14 to 18. Now, if you weren't here last week, the passage that we looked at last week ended in this way. This is a little bit jarring. The question that comes up here is, is God being unjust? And that question comes up because of what was said right before it. And what was said right before it is this. In verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, and as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So last week we looked at this reality that God, throughout human history, back in the history even of Israel, God had chosen some and not others to be the heirs of His promise, to become His children. And so the question that we get to in verse 14, very logically, is this. Is there injustice on God's part? That He would choose to have mercy on some and not others. God chose to have mercy on Jacob and not Esau. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. What's the deal with that? Is there injustice on God's part? And just like he did last week, Paul answers that question on his own right away, really quick, and he says, by no means. The question is, is God unjust in any way by doing it this way? And the answer right away is, by no means. And what we're going to look at in the rest of this passage is a further explanation of why it is not unjust for God to show his mercy to some and not to others. Okay, that's what we're going to look at as we look at the rest of Romans chapter 9 this morning. I think one point that we need to keep in mind that's going to help us to really understand this passage really well is this. That God owes mercy to no one. God owes mercy to no one. What we see in verses 15 and 16 is that God is willingly on His own making the choice to show compassion and mercy to some and not to others. So verse 15 quotes what God says to Moses, and what God said to Moses was this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy, by definition, is not something that anybody deserves. Right? Can we agree on that? That mercy is not like, God doesn't owe you mercy. You, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, have rebelled against Him. We are sinful, and because of our sin, we are separated from God by our sin and under His wrath, and He owes mercy to no one. 
And so that's why God can say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He owes it to no one. And so verse 16 goes on and says this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Maybe your translation doesn't say human will or exertion. Maybe it says human desire or effort. Maybe it says human will or effort, one of those things. Okay, all really the same idea. And I know that probably in your life groups, and and I think anybody that reads through Romans 9, one of the first questions that we have is, well, what about free will? Because it sort of sounds like we've got this God who chooses before people are born, before they've done anything good or bad, God chooses to have mercy on some and not on others. Is that fair? What about free will? We have lots of questions, don't we? So I want to just quickly address that question, not in full. I'm not going to be able to do that in one little sermon. But that question, what about free will, that, that, that phrase, that phrase exactly, free will, doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. Um, that concept certainly is there, right? The concept in the Bible that we as humans willingly can make choices that have real effects in real time, right? We see that concept, but the, the words free will don't show up. Uh, in Scripture, this might be one of the spots where it's closest to that idea, where it says human will. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so some people would say, well, wait, so it's not up to us? It depends not on human will or exertion? Do, do we not have a choice then? Is that what it's saying? I would say, no, it's not saying that. We do have a choice. But what we've found as we've gone through the book of Romans so far is that all of us willingly choose sin. That's what we want. We are born sinners by nature and sinners by choice. We willingly, nobody forces us to sin. We quite willingly do it on our own, right? And so, yes, we have free will. And what I have chosen to do in my free will over and over again is I have chosen to do what Jeremy wants to do and live like Jeremy's the king and reject Jesus as king, right? That started way back in Romans chapter 1, that we've heard that idea over and over again. So with our free will, what we often choose to do is sin because we are, what Romans says, slaves to sin. Ephesians says we're dead in our sin. And so our free will seems very free, but in fact we're enslaved to sin. And until God comes to do something, by His Spirit sends us, uh, causes us to be born again by giving us a new heart, my choice is going to always be to do what I want to do and to live as though I'm my own king. Now, not every Christian would talk about free will in that same way I recognize that. I'm just trying to, uh, after, after I'm, I'm young, okay, I might learn more stuff uh, as I get older and explain it in a different way. But in my, my years of studying Scripture so far, um, that's the best way I can come up with explaining it. That yes, we have free will, and in our free will, we choose sin. And I need somebody to come and rescue me from my slavery to sin. To make, give me spiritual life when I'm spiritually dead. To heart to soften and give me a new heart because my heart is hard. That's what I need. Okay? So I was trying to think of like, is there an illustration that might help us get our minds around this a little bit more? Um, 
be, before I share that, here, here's a concept. I wrote this down. I don't think I put it on the slide, but um, this. God's mercy doesn't come to those who deserve it because they chose him. God's mercy goes to those on whom God chooses to have mercy. I think that's pretty clear in verses 15 and 16 and in many other spots in Scripture. I'll say that again. God's mercy doesn't come to those who deserve his mercy because they made a good choice and chose him. God's mercy goes to those on whom God chooses to have mercy. So here's an illustration, picture of people, okay? I've told a couple of you before, maybe I've even mentioned it in a sermon before, uh, that when God called me into pastoral ministry, I was planning to be a high school teacher, God called me into pastoral ministry and decided that to prepare for that, I ought to go to seminary, um, because I didn't study theology and Bible and stuff while I was in college, like I need to go study that. Now, I had already racked up, we went to a, a private Christian liberal arts college, which means really lots of money, that's what that means. So we already had a bunch of student loan um, uh, built up, uh, and Kirsten and I got married between our junior and senior year of college, so we're young with no income hardly to speak of, and I'm about to go do another three years of school, um, or maybe four or five years of school, paying a ton of money, and, and just my plan was, I'm going to just bring in uh, more debt. I'm just going to rack up more debt and my bills will just get higher and higher. And someday, because I'll be rich and I'll be a pastor, I will pay that off. Right? So that's my plan. Um, which may or may not sound like a good plan to you, but that was the plan. So I enrolled in seminary, had taken a class, and then I found this out. I found out that I had been the recipient of all of my seminary being paid by these people. Bob and Pat Kern, a wealthy couple in the state of Wisconsin, had chosen to give me and 48 other students across the nation at different seminaries a gift of three full years, in addition to many other things as well, three full years of paying all of our tuition. I would pay nothing to go to seminary because of Bob and Pat Kern's generosity. Right? I owed the school. Yeah, praise God for Bob and Pat Kern. Very cool right? But listen, there was a whole bunch of other people that went to seminary that same year, and they did not receive that gift from them. And would anybody look at Bob and Pat Kern and say to them, you are being unjust that you would give this merciful, gracious gift to some and not to others. I didn't deserve it. Nobody deserved it. But they willingly gave it to us, and nobody would call them unjust because they didn't give it to everybody, right? Does that make sense? That illustration help a little bit? See some nodding heads and some people say, I still don't like it. Um, Okay. God's mercy doesn't come to those who deserve it because they chose him. God's mercy is given to those to whom God chooses to give mercy. And God does not owe anyone mercy. Okay? When I received that gift from them, my first response wasn't to argue with them and tell them, well, why didn't you give it to some other people? I said, thank you. That's what I told them. Thank you. I didn't deserve that. I did get to meet him once. It was kind of fun. Um, verse 17. Verse 17 says this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, another Old Testament example, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm not going to have time to go back and kind of tell you the whole story of God's interaction with Pharaoh. 
only this we need to know, probably this is going to be helpful, and that is that in the book of Exodus, God it talks about two different things happening. One is Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and his people, and also it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says both of those things there. Okay? Pharaoh had willingly chosen to remain in his sin, rebellious against God and against God's people, and God then hardened his heart. And so that's why it says in verse 18, this principle, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay? And that, that idea, I know that concept, it's like, wait, so he's going to just harden some people? And again, we need to keep in mind that we all naturally have hearts that are hardened towards God. God's not doing something, God's not putting us in a state that we're not already in. When it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart was already hard. It just, just further compounded the, the state uh, that Pharaoh's heart was in. Okay? And, and I think it's quite possible that this might only be for a time. Uh, that, that even in Romans chapter 1, remember in Romans chapter 1, it talks about our, our inclination to sin. That we don't worship the Creator, but we worship creation. And what does God do? He gives them over to their sin. God, it's as though God just says, well, if that's what you really want, then that's what you can have. Right? We saw that in Romans chapter 1. I think the same kind of concept here. So how do you conclude all of this? I think it would be this. This first point, conclusion is this. God's choice to have mercy on some and not others is not unjust because God owes mercy to no one. Okay? Just the same way if a couple goes to visit an orphanage in Romania and there are many orphans there and that couple comes home, raises the money and fills out the paperwork and chooses to adopt one of those from that orphanage, they are not being unjust by not adopting each and every one of them, right? They're not being unjust. All right. So, second point is this. Human responsibility and God's purposes for His glory. Because if our salvation depends not primarily or not ultimately on our will, but on God's choice to have mercy on us, then some people would ask the question, so then are we still responsible for our sin? I mean, how can He blame us for our sin if that's just kind of how we're born and that's what we're going to do? How, how are we still responsible for that? Is sin still our fault? Paul knows that people are probably thinking about things like this. So again, he puts the question right in the letter. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I love that about Romans 9. It's like any time that people are like, yeah, but. Uh, and then they say something. Paul's like, oh yeah, I already knew about that. Yeah, but. I knew you were going to ask that. Let me address that really quick. Okay? So the question that people would have is, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's what it says in verse 19. And Paul's response might be a bit surprising. Paul's response here in, I've got to find the right page. I'm on the wrong page. Where are I? Okay, here we go. Yes, Paul's response might be kind of surprising because you might respond them to say, well, no, it's all about, they have free will, and so God's just, punishing them for the free choice that they've made. And, and, but that's not where Paul goes. Paul answers this important question by giving another series of questions. 
and it's humbling. Just so you know, like this is this is not this is not like uh, like like somebody said in our life group. This is not like warm fuzzy kind of stuff. But I think it can be. Um, let, let me just look at what Paul does next. Because the question is, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Is God being fair to punish us and hold us responsible for our sin? Here's what Paul says. Basically, know your place. Will you talk back to God and question what he does? Here's how he says it. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? If you're arrogant like I can be, you need verses like this. I need this. Because my temptation is to look at all of the good in my life and give myself credit for it. And I need verses like this that, that are reminding me of the fact, the reason that I'm saved is because God has chosen to show mercy on me. And if I would come back with a question, well, what about this and what about that? God, are you being unfair? God, how can you still hold me responsible for my sin? Paul's response to that is this question. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That kind of kicks some arrogance right out of you, doesn't it? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And then he uses this, this uh, illustration of pottery and clay. Now, um, th this Christmas, uh, we did in our family, just with my siblings and parents, we did a white elephant gift exchange. And for that, uh, Kirsten found at Goodwill here in town a piece of pottery that was going to be our gift that we would donate to this gift exchange. Now, I think you would call it a goblet. Um, I want you to, I don't have a picture of it. My, somebody else won it, uh, received the gift, and so we don't have it anymore. But picture this with me. Um, it's a goblet made out of clay, uh, and the top of it is this cup-like thing that is uh, green and glazed really pretty well done cup. But that cup is attached to this really long un unglazed brown stem that's uh, not, not really um, proportioned quite correctly. And it's super long, okay, and it's thick. Uh, and at the bottom of that, that is sitting upon a base uh, that is uneven. So when you set it down, it kind of sits crooked. Uh, and on the bottom of that base is scratched into the clay is the name of who I assume was the potter, and it's the name Sheila. Okay? Now this, this piece of art or um, drinkware or whatever it is that you'd call it, quite frankly, was ugly. Okay? And I wasn't around when Sheila sculpted this, but I am quite certain that at no point during Sheila's sculpting activity did that goblet turn its head towards Sheila and say, what are you thinking? Right? That, that doesn't happen. That's the illustration that Paul's using. Can, can what is being molded say to the molder? Can, can, the, can the piece of pottery say to the potter, why are you doing it this way? Right? Clay doesn't question the potter. 
And he's using this as, a, as an illustration to, to help us to humble ourselves. We're not very humble by nature. Most of our questions when we read Romans 9 are like, well, what about me? In Romans 9, it's just not a lot about us. It's a lot about God and his mercy. And you're, you're wondering, well, is this fair? And you've got all these questions. They're good questions to ask. Dig deeper. But I hope that in the end, what happens is that God's spirit would come and humble you, that your response would not be to say, well, what about me? But didn't I do this and didn't I do that? But that our response at the end of Romans 9 would be to say, oh, praise God for what he has done. I don't get it. If you, were to, if you wanted me, like Pastor Jeremy, explain to me exactly how God is going to get more glory by saving some and not others. I don't know. I can't give you the kind of answer that's probably going to satisfy you. I don't, I don't know exactly how to do that. But I can say, like Paul does here, but I know God's got a good plan and I'm not going to question it. Who am I to answer back to him? Just because I don't totally understand it or I don't think he should have done it that way doesn't mean I'm going to tell God how I think he should have done it instead. Right? Verses 22 and 23 talk about the fact that God has a purpose in this. God has a plan. I might not understand exactly why or how it works this way, but God does. How will God make known His wrath, His power, and the riches of His glory? Well, it says in verse 22 and 23, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which, is, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Way back in verse 11, it said that God had a purpose of election. All of this happened, it said in verse 11, so that God's purpose of election might continue. But it never says what God's purpose of election was back in verse 11. But here I think we see God's purpose of election. Why is it that God chooses to have mercy on some and not on others? Well, it's not because some were just smarter than other people and they made better choices than other people. It's for God's glory in some way. And here is about the best answer we get. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? By enduring with patience those who, by the way, they have lived their lives. Listen, this is the way we live our lives. We live our lives in such a way that we are preparing ourselves for destruction. We're sinners. Right? And God will show his power by pouring out his wrath on those who do not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And God will also make known the riches of his glory, which he has prepared beforehand, for his vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now I want you to notice something in the, in the way these words work here. In verses 22 and 23, it talks about one group of people being prepared for destruction and another being prepared for glory, right? Those that receive God's mercy prepared for glory. Those that receive um, God's wrath prepared for destruction, right? Two different groups of people. Notice how in verse 23, it talks about that those that are going to receive God's mercy are the ones that he has prepared beforehand for glory, 
But in verse 22, it just says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They've been prepared for that in some way, but it doesn't say it's God that prepared them for destruction. I think it's because it is their own free will that has prepared them for destruction. Their own choice to sin against God has prepared them for destruction, while God has chosen to prepare others beforehand for glory. Okay? Again, something to wrestle with a little bit more. But here's what I think we can see in this. God shows His power and wrath and the riches of His glory by pouring out deserved wrath on some and undeserved mercy on others. Okay? As I'm looking at these verses, that's kind of where I come. God shows His power and wrath and the riches of His glory by pouring out deserved wrath. God is not being unjust. It's not like He's pouring out wrath on people who don't deserve it. Right? He's pouring out deserved wrath on some and undeserved mercy on others. And again, my response to this I understand the response that's kind of like across your arms and shake your head, say, yeah, but, yeah, but, but my response is not that. My response, the more and more I've studied these things and read things like Romans 9, is not to cross my arms and start to question God, but it's just to fall to my knees, just like this, just to say, no, God, me, really? You, you, you don't, you, you're the one that knows my sin more than anybody else. And you would choose to have mercy on me? That's my response when I read Romans 9, rather than the response of, yeah, but that. And I hope that that can be our response together. Because what God has done in saving me is he has chosen an unlikely person. And that's what God's been doing for a long time. And that's how Paul ends this passage. We'll go through this last part really quick. God saves unlikely sinners. That's what we see in the end. So that's why in verse 24, Paul begins it like this. Even us. Even us. We're one of these ones who have received God's mercy. He's preparing us for glory. Even us. Whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul could look at the church in Rome and say, look at all of you. What in the world? You Jewish people, you Gentiles who worship false gods your whole life, all of you together living in sin, you hear the gospel, and now you're one of God's people, even us. That should be our response. Not a, yeah, but God, but just a, even us. Like, us, really? Us? Out of all the people? Us? from among the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he says, God's been doing this stuff for a long time. God's been showing mercy to Gentiles for a long time. 700 years before Christ, the time of Hosea, God says this, those who are not my people, that is Gentiles, I've I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. It's not a new thing that God is saving Gentiles. God has always desired to show his mercy toward Gentiles. In Paul's day, that's mostly what's happening. And the Jewish people are wondering, well, what's the deal? 
But this is not a new plan of God to show mercy to our Gentiles, taking people who are not his people and he's calling them his people. Those who are not beloved and saying, you're my beloved. Adopting them into the family. And then verses 27 to 29, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Okay? And, and so the people in Paul's day shouldn't be surprised that God was saving Gentiles. They also shouldn't be surprised that God was not saving every person from Israel. Right? Because it was clear last week, God doesn't save people based on their works or their genealogy. Right? God saves people based on His mercy. And so God has always done this, where it was never God's plan that everybody, just because they were born into a certain family, gets saved. Only a remnant from Israel will be saved. Now, I just encourage you, um, come back over the next week, because some of these questions that you have, some of this mystery, some of this stuff that I have a hard time understanding, we're going to get to chapter 10, and it's going to talk all about the choice that we have to make in responding to the gospel, either by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus, or rejecting Jesus and continuing to live in sin. We're going to see that in chapter 10. And there's no conflict between the sovereignty of God that we see in chapter 9 and the choice that we have to make about how we're going to respond to Jesus in chapter 10. I can't preach both of those sermons every time, right? And and right now we're in Romans 9. And so the heavy emphasis this week and last week has been on the sovereignty of God. We're going we're gonna, to, uh, the questions that you have about what about, what about the choice, we have, we're going to get there because he gets there in chapter 10. But I think it's on purpose that chapter 9 is first. And I like to think about often this. I like to think about what if God had not shown us mercy? And if I'm going to take full credit for something, you know what I'm going to take full credit for? My sin. I take full responsibility for the ways in which I sin. And if I'm going to give credit to somebody for my salvation, it's not going to be me, ultimately. It's not going to be even ultimately the people that preach the gospel to me. If I'm going to give full credit and praise and glory and thanks to somebody for my salvation, it's going to be God. That's one of the conclusions I come away from chapter 9 with. I'm responsible for my sin. And God deserves all the praise and credit and glory and thanks for my salvation. If it were not for his mercy, where would we be? So when God has saved us, here's what we don't do. We don't pat ourselves on the back because we made the good choice. Look at me. Look what I did. And now God owes me mercy because I made the right choice. That's not our response. When we see that God has saved us through our faith in Jesus, we humble ourselves before our great God. We sing something like we're going to sing here at the end of the worship service, and that's this. I once was lost in darkest night. (laughs) And the thing was, I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. And I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. I had no hope that that God God was somehow going to give me mercy because I deserved it. And if you had not loved me first... I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, 
indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Where I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath deserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hope we can sing that. And then the chorus goes like this. That this would be our response to the truths that we read in Romans chapter 9. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. God, I pray that even as we sing that now, that we would sing that with joy from the bottom of our hearts. That we would not look upon the fact that you have had mercy on us and say it's because you owed it to us in some way. That we would not look upon the fact that we who trust in Christ are saved and say it's because of something that we've did, we've done. But that instead, God, we would recognize the path that we were on apart from you and had it not been for your mercy and your grace, extended toward us, we would be headed for destruction even now. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who uh, have not uh, gotten to a point in their life where they've readily confessed all of their sin before God. Those that have not yet recognized that their only hope for life is to put their faith in Christ. And their only only hope for eternal life is to put their faith in Christ. I pray that they might be encouraged by your word to do that today. As they feel the stirring of your Holy Spirit in their heart, drawing them to yourself, giving them a new heart, a heart that was once hard that has now been replaced by a new heart that can now respond to Jesus in faith. Pray that they might do that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.